one of my corpsmen said to one of the other corpsmen, I was right there. He goes, this is just like training, but I have to remind myself it's the real thing. And I thought, that's, that's perfect. We've trained just enough where this is a guy, this is his first ever mass casualty, and he's comfortable enough to feel like, hey, this is exactly what we've been doing in training. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode of War Docs, we speak with retired Navy Captain Paul B. Roach, a general and oncologic surgeon who is currently the Chief of General Surgery at the Heinz VA Hospital in the western suburbs of Chicago. Dr. Roach recounts many of his experiences from deployments and provides some important lessons learned that have led to improvements in combat casualty care. He's also an author and talks about what led him to write his memoir, Citizen Surgeon, and what he hopes readers take away from reading the book. Paul also relates his passion to prepare the next generation of military medical professionals to care for those injured in combat, and he talks about his work with the American College of Surgeons in developing a military clinical readiness curriculum. Find out more about Dr. Roach and our previous guests on our website, wardogspodcast.com. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Navy Captain, Dr. Paul B. Roach to Wardox. Paul, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Dr. Roach, tell us about your background and how you developed an interest in the military. I grew up just outside of Chicago, and my dad was a psychiatrist, and he worked for the Heinz VA, which is a large VA. And I didn't ever really hear too much about his experience as a Navy doctor in the Korean War. It was always there in the background. And then he passed away sort of quickly when I was about 18. And I suppose it was a few years later that I really decided that perhaps maybe just to get to know him better, I wanted to follow in that, in that path. So you went to Rush Medical College and then did a surgery internship. And for those who don't know, and it's still a little bit that way in the Navy, but in the dark ages, going into a surgical field meant that you did your internship and then you did an operational tour. And you went ahead and did a flight surgeon role. Tell us a little bit about that. So that's exactly how it used to be. And, and I think there's a lot of great things about that model. But I did it medical school and then internship was at Oakland Naval Hospital in California. It was 50-50 Navy slash University of California. And at the end of the year, or I should say maybe in the middle of it, the specialty leader was like, if you want to continue on in surgery, you have to go operational, which would be perhaps a one-year tour or two-year tour with the Marine Corps or a year or two out to sea with the ships, or you could do a six-month school and then a two and a half year tour with either subs or divers. That's the undersea medicine path or six month school and two and a half year tour with aviation. So I decided I'd either do diving or aviation. I applied to both. 
because I just, I was kind of done with training. I wanted to get out there and live for a bit and do the mission. And it had already been five years. So I was ready in my mind emotionally as well. And I got picked up for a flight first and I took it. And before I knew it, I was in Pensacola, Florida at the flight surgery training. And so how did you feel that your training as a surgery intern helped you or didn't help you? Because a lot of it's now medicine and not surgery when you're doing the flight surgery training. So this is where Oakland Naval was really good. They insisted, even though it was a surgery internship, that we had something more of a transitional internship than a typical surgery one. So I did have OBGYN. I had ER. I had cardiology and internal medicine rotations as well. So fortunately, I wasn't a strict surgical internship. So I was okay when I got out there doing the primary care mission. So where did you go after you finished your flight med school? The billets came out and all the graduates, we had a raffle and we did a little bit of horse trading. And I ended up going to Okinawa with the Marines. And I was going to be a flight surgeon for the helicopter medium, which was the CH-46s. It's a little bit smaller than the Army's Chinook CH-47 helicopter squadron. And at that time, we were also going to be the air combat element of what's called a MU. It was the 31st MU. And what a MU is, it's got all the elements that the Marines need, aviation, logistics, and infantry, to be able to go do any mission. If the president says, look, I need you there tomorrow to go, you know, as we used to say, when it absolutely positively has to be blown up overnight, you can go there and you've got everything all ready to go. So we're the 31st Mew, which meant if anything happened in the Pacific for that six, seven month tour, we were there. Do you have any memorable experiences from that time when you were a flight surgeon? Yeah. I had a medevac. There was a guy who got injured on a ship and I had to get in the, the frog, the CH-46 is called the frog, get in there and medevac him to the army hospital in Seoul. And as soon as that happened, weather moved in, the bird left and I was sort of stranded in Seoul and I had no idea. I was just a boot lieutenant. I had no idea what to do because we were based out of the southeastern corner of the peninsula in Pohang. And here I am in Seoul, my bird's gone, the guy's taken care of. And so the office there, the Navy liaison office said, well, just stay here, come check with us every day and we'll be in touch with your command. So I believed them. And so I just hung around Seoul for a few days, which wasn't bad. It was a free vacation while everyone else is working. Meanwhile, my command was freaking out and they were out to sea because of the weather but they were sending a bird to Pohang, which is at the far end of the peninsula, every day wondering where I was. And this office was not in touch with them, even though they said they were. And so I was like, you know what? I just got to go to Pohang. So I got on a train, I think, and I got down there and got picked up. And I got back to the ship. My commanding officer was just furious. And he said, where have you been? You know, we were looking for you. We were trying to pick you up. And this is the days before cell phones, before easy communication. And he said, if you hadn't done such a good job before, I'd be really upset with you. But all that was going to happen was we were, we had a, a mission out to Vladivostok that everyone wanted to go to. 
And so I got grounded for that mission, and then it was back in everybody's good graces. Better lucky than good, as they say. Now, did you ever get a chance to fly the frog? Oh, yeah. So you you get flight training in Navy flight surgery school. You learn how to fly. I did the helicopter syllabus, so I learned how to fly the helicopter. And the training helicopter is a TH-46. And then I moved from that to the frog. And so I got a lot of flight time with the stick because it's a two-piloted machine, of course. And I actually found it to be really fun. And I would start to volunteer for everything, including flight checks after repairs were made and whatever else. And I, I wouldn't say I was a great pilot, but at least I could get invited back. So this didn't sway you to not become a surgeon because subsequently you then went to the University of Maryland to start your general surgery residency. It did sway me. So after that tour, we went back to DC and we had our second baby and we were living the life. It was a great life. I love being a flight surgeon and we were really happy. We had a lot of time together. The children were growing. And my wife said, do we really need to do this to get back into the training mode? Because she was there for me the whole time, med school, internship, all of this. And she knew what it involved. And I don't know, I just, I just had to do it. And also, I think from a practical standpoint, it was a smart move. But it was a real splash into the cold water when I went back. Fortunately, I had done a ton of studying all four years. I would do it every day. I was very disciplined about it, usually before work. So I'd, all my bookwork was together. But those first couple of months, I was nearly let go, I think, because I was so rusty and so out of it. What advice would you give somebody who has to do that break in their career when they end up going in? Because some residencies are tougher than others and surgery being one of the tougher ones. What advice would you give someone? I would say, and I feel really comfortable giving this advice. One, enjoy the heck out of your break in training. Enjoy whatever your military obligation is that you're doing. It's a relief to not be in a training mode. You're a full human being again, and you got to love that. And then also, you can't forget that you're going to go back. And so you really do have to wake up before work every day and for 90 minutes or two hours do your homework every single day, because when you get back, it's really going to be very helpful. You'll be super rusty, but if at least you got all the book work done and done really well, you're going to be fine. So after your residency training, you got a hardship assignment to Siganella, Italy. How was that as your, your first assignment? Did you feel prepared to do what they were asking you to do as a surgeon? So that hardship assignment just Pure, total, random chance. I was going to go to Puerto Rico. Our goods were already packed up and flying there. And there was a bombing accident in the island of Vieques, I think. And then the, the, it changed the character and, and the hospital was going to shut down and people were going to pull out. So then there was a scramble and then I was going to go to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. I was going to go to an aircraft carrier. And when I went to the office to pick up my orders. I didn't know. And it said Siganella. So I called my wife. I had a cell phone at the time, the old Nokia's, if you guys remember those. And she couldn't believe it. I said, we're going to Sicily. And she's like, what? Screaming. And yeah, so I don't remember how our goods ever found, caught their way, but it was, as you said, Doug, a pure hardship tour it was, the food was awesome. It was sunny 271 days of the year. 
It was great. And I had a, an awesome partner. So it was just Joe McPhee and I, and he was a fresh grad from, from Long Island. And he had three little boys. We had three little girls, same ages. Justine, his wife, was wonderful. And we were just doing a bread and butter surgery practice every day and hanging out. It was, it was the good life. At that time, that was 2003. And I had said to the detailer, do whatever you're going to do. And they didn't send us, either of us, even though we we're very well trained in trauma, to combat, I guess, because I don't know why, but they said they didn't know us or something. They wanted to give us a, a shore tour first. So after that assignment, you decided to do fellowship training in complex surgical oncology. What, what kind of brought that on and, and why did you do that? Well, at Maryland, we had a lot of, I mean, everything was very solid, vascular, pediatrics, trauma, obviously. And the surgical oncology was not its own dedicated program at the time, but we had really good surgeons and mentors. And when I got out to Siganella, I really realized that, that I wanted to concentrate on, on that field. I didn't know if I'd be able to get in because I didn't have any research. And most of the time people do. But I said, what the heck? We'll just throw it out there. And the Navy was happy for me to do it because you're training in big cases, complex cases. If you can do that, you can do this. And then I was really fortunate during the interview process. And when you, you, you fly home and you go across probably to 10 different hospitals at the time, it went very well. And I had, I got my number one choice, which was University of Chicago. So am I looking at your CV correctly and that this was a three-year fellowship or was this a two-year fellowship? No, at the time, UFC would only uh, agree to a three-year fellowship. And I thought I was going to be in trouble because the Navy didn't want me doing a three-year fellowship. But I called and they were, they were very happy it was University of Chicago and they said, yeah, we'll give you a three-year fellowship. I'm a slow learner, so I needed that extra year. What would you tell people if they're listening and saying... Okay, complex surgical oncology. What would you tell them like is the description of, of what that is if they were interested in, they never, they're in medical school and they're like, hey, what is complex surgical oncology? Well, like today I had a case where a person had, had a colon cancer two years before and that was removed emergently because it was blocking his intestine. He was obstructed. And he came back and he had two more colon cancers at the same time one of which was growing into the tail of his pancreas. So today we removed the rest of that colon and the distal half of his pancreas and his spleen. So that's a complex surgical oncology case. It's when the, when the problems get really tricky and you have to maybe get a team together to manage it. We did have a urologist in the case today, Doug, you'll be happy to know because it was plastered onto the kidney and we had to figure out is it just inflammatory or was it actually neoplastic? And so we did frozen sections and all, and I realized that was just some inflammation from a, a, a perforation through the colon. So that's what complex surgical oncology is, is when the cancers make it very tricky and you have to create your new solution to every particular problem. So I'm going to ask you the next question. I know the answer, but I'm going to ask it. How would you explain to somebody that that job translates to taking care of patients who are injured in combat? So that's a great question. And I 
really focused maybe the last 10 years of my Navy career on that issue, on how do you take whatever it is you're focused on and translate it to combat surgery. So the short answer is the training for surgical oncology has you everywhere in the body, in the neck, in the chest, in the extremities, in the abdomen, in the retroperitoneum. And trauma does that as well. And so if you're comfortable in those different areas and how to handle yourself in the different spots, it, you're going to be with some practice at the trauma algorithms and the trauma rhythm, you're going to be fine. It's not like you're just working on a single area. You're all over the place with surgical oncology. Yeah, I think that's that's the important aspect is if you understand the anatomy, you can take care of the abnormal anatomy. But you deployed in 2009, both at land and sea with USS Bataan in the Persian Gulf as a ship surgeon, and then with the Alpha Surgical Company 1st Medical Battalion, and that was at Helmand Province, Afghanistan, in the southern portion of Afghanistan, also in at Camp Bastion and Camp Dwyer. Tell us about that deployment and how it is that you were deployed to both a ship and then to land. I was, I was initially going to go to Iraq. And so I did a month of training or whatever it was, maybe three weeks or so out in Camp Lejeune. And we were headed towards Iraq. Literally on the last day of that training, our group was told, you're not going. So go back home. And I had already moved my family from Virginia to our house in Chicago because while I was going to be deployed, it was, remember, the housing crash had happened around then. We had an empty house. So instead of renting a house and paying for an empty house, we just moved them back and then they were all happy to move back. So my family was now gone and I had nothing really to go back to in Virginia. So I called my specialty leader. And I said, help me out. I just lost my mission. I've already moved my family home. I have no reason to go back to my hospital. Can you give me something else? And I'll, I'll do it. And he said, all right, you're going to go to Afghanistan and I need you to cover a ship in the Persian Gulf for a few months. So in the end, it turned out to be a 14 month deployment, but I was at least able to my family was there. And then he said, and then I'll move you back to Chicago when you're done. If you do all this for me, I'll do this for you. And I said, that's a good deal. So you actually wrote a memoir focused primarily on your deployment experience during that deployment in Helmont province. And the, the book is called Citizen Surgeon. And, and I had a chance to read it. I really enjoyed it. Kind of brought back a lot of memories, and a lot of similar experiences during that time frame. But in the book, you write that the reason you wrote it was because you needed to write it. What did you mean by that? And what do you hope that readers come away with after reading the book? Well, when I got home, it was, it was really hard to be home that first year or so. I was, I was obviously thrilled to be home. I missed my family intensely and, and I loved being home, but that deployment was so intense and so... I just 100% engrossing that it's like you leave a part of yourself there. And I, I didn't know what else to do. And so I was taking notes and I was writing them and it was my own way of, I guess, figuring out all the different elements of that deployment and 
how it, what it meant and, and how to handle it. And the way I describe it is you have all these issues and ideas and feelings and they're flying about your head. And in writing the book, and it didn't start out as a book, it started out just as writing notes. You grab it and you catch it and you put it down on paper and then you can, you can control it instead of it controlling you. And so in that process, I was doing that every day or most days, I realized I had a book, but that was only long into it. So you describe in the book several times where you were in an experience where maybe it was outside your comfort zone. And, and the one that I'm thinking about is, I think when you first got there, you got called in because there was two pediatric gunshot wounds. And you're like, great, I haven't done pediatric surgery for a long time. And it turns out that the, the, the kid had the magic bullet that went outside his rib cage. And then the, I guess his sister got hit in the foot. But how do you deal with those situations where you feel like, man, I, I haven't seen this in training and am I going to do the right thing? How do you deal with that? Th- that, that is really the, the hardest part of the whole combat surgery enterprise for me. And, and I think listening to your other guests on other podcasts, it is for them as well. And it's a recurring theme that you, you get your training and you move out into life and it's, it's big. You're faced with big problems and real world consequences. And you're just hoping that you're going to hold up and that you're going to do it right. And how you deal with that? I think. I think that must be the reason we go into this profession to begin with, is we want to know, will I be able to carry it? Will I be able to do it? Am I good enough? Am I able enough to carry this mission out? And I guess whenever it's my turn, and it's still, I still feel it today before big cases, am I, am I really going to do this? Am I going to be able to carry it out? I just go back to the rigors of med school, the rigors of internship and and residency and fellowship and just remind myself, I have done all the work. I've put in who knows how much. I can do this. I know I can do this. Just concentrate, focus, keep control of yourself and move on and put one foot in front of the other and and you, you do get it done. And I think that's the benefit with all of us in military medicine. I would like to say, I think, I think we've all had the benefit of terrific training. And it, in the end, it shows because our numbers, our survival data was great that, uh, that it worked. You know, I really related with what you just said, because even now, just like you, when I go into a big vascular surgery case, I do have the thoughts of if plan A doesn't work, then I'm going to go B then C, but I, f- I find that the question comes up to me as a vascular surgeon advising for the army, because I'm, I'm the consultant, is that people will say, well, we need someone that's an expert in, you name the field, and my field is vascular surgery. So they'll say, we need an expert in vascular surgery at some place. And everyone is trained in general surgery to do that surgery, but they find themselves in sometimes outside of their normal comfort because it's been a decade or more since they've done 
a vascular surgery case under the guidance of a vascular surgeon, how, how would you coax somebody who does feel that apprehension, particularly in a combat zone, that, that they are trained, but they just need to overcome that mental hurdle? Well, I think that the most important thing we can do as a system is repeat exposure over time. And so let's say you're a pilot and you flew one airframe and then you're flying a new airframe for 10 years. And then someone says, oh, I want you to go fly that original airframe. And I want you to do it right now. And by the way, it's dark outside and raining and I'm sure you'll be fine. That pilot is not going to agree to that. They're not going to be fine. They're like, no, I need to train back up on that airframe and then I'll be fine. I just need 10 hours on it or something. And so with, with our, our job, I've always felt, and I've written papers and, and helped establish a, a system by which with Shane Jensen and others, where we can go back to the well and we can, and we can practice vascular surgery again. And we can like, that's the asset plus course is a great thing where you've already had your, your fundamental training and you've achieved competency once. And that was a big deal and it took years, but you just need to go back every couple of years for a little bit and refresh those skills. And then you're going to be fine. If you haven't gone back, it's a real struggle I've deployed. One of the things I did was I, I really developed this relationship with a local trauma center here in Chicago at Cook County. And I used to take volunteer trauma call. So when I deployed in 2009, I hadn't been doing trauma beforehand. And those first cases were terrifying and a little rusty. Then when I deployed again in 2014, I had been taking trauma call just once a month volunteer. And I was completely fine because it was just enough to keep it all, all fresh. And I just want our listeners to understand what the asset plus course is because they may have heard that and not really understand what you were talking about. And that is a course that's run by the American College of Surgeons that is the advanced surgical skills for exposure and trauma. That's what the asset stands for. The military puts a plus on that because then they add a little bit extra for the deploying surgeons before they go so that people know that this is a little bit of a military-specific practice pattern. But would you give, and, and I agree with you 100%, I did the asset course before my most recent deployment last year, and as a vascular surgeon, I didn't necessarily need the vascular exposures, but it did brush me up on a lot of the other aspects of expeditionary surgical care that I hadn't done in, in, in a few years. Are there any other areas that you would advise surgeons to focus on before deployment in addition to the Asset Plus course? Yes. I was part of this group of, it was Air Force and Army and Navy surgeons that we, we wrote, I don't know, 650 test questions. There's a, an exam and we, we wrote a textbook and I was an editor of the trunk section and and an author of the abdominal section. And it's an online curriculum for military or anybody who wants to dial into it. And you can access it through the American College of Surgeons. And so I think that a combination of the book work and undergoing the exam and then signing up for ASSET or ASSET Plus, I think that the 
group at USU has done an amazing job with all of this, putting it together. And I think that you need to access each different modality to get ready. And then the other thing that I did, which might be over the top, but I really don't think so, was I got involved with my local trauma center and I would volunteer and take call acting like a a fellow maybe once a month just to go do that and freshen up. The hospital was great. I made great friendships. And in doing that, you know, you get familiar with trauma algorithms and whatnot, because it's not just one patient. You might need to, in a busy trauma center, see 30 patients in order to, to take that one or two people to the OR yourself. There's people who go for ortho or for neurosurgeries or whatnot, but to get your general surgery cases in, you got to treat a lot of people. And so you're running through the algorithms all the time and you're figuring out who's sick from who isn't sick. It's a very different job than if someone just points to you and says, operate on this. And you're like, okay. But let's say you've got five people in a car crash and one of them is really sick. And how do you work up all five at the same time? And you can't get that from a book and you can't get that from a course. The only way you can get that is to go do it. So I would say a combination of all these things. And, and what you're discussing is the military-specific curriculum by the American College of Surgeons. Is that what, what you're des- describing? Yes, sir. And it's, it's great. I was proud to be one of the members who was working on it. And I was a great bunch of people. And a lot of people volunteered a lot of time to make it. So there's an online textbook that you can access through the ACS, and it's got questions. And I think it will improve over the years. This was the first ever edition. And then there's also an, an exam, one for general surgeons. There's another one for trauma surgeons. And you take that and you test your combat skills. And the interesting thing about this exam is like a good friend of mine who's, who's a great trauma surgeon, he finished his general surgery residency, hadn't started trauma yet, hadn't started, hadn't done a deployment yet passed his boards, took this exam, and did not do all that well on it. He shouldn't have done all that well on it because it's all combat surgery-related questions. So we deliberately, they're not overlapping with your American College of Surgeons or your American Board of Surgeons questions. So it's all related to just combat surgery. So all of that specific kind of stuff that's different from working in your civilian hospital. One of the unique things that, that folks in military medicine deal with that I think most people don't appreciate at all is taking care of enemy combatants who maybe hours earlier were trying to kill your buddies and coalition troops, and now they're in your operating room with nothing but hate, and you do a great operation and they want to spit at you. How do you maintain professionalism and provide the best care possible under those circumstances? I would remind myself that I was just a a player in the whole play. I was not the main event. I was a supporting actor, I should say. And these people that were so mad at me that we had saved, I thought, well, something good will come of of what we're doing. And they're not being nice to me or to my team, and we're going to take our precautions, but maybe this person over time will be able to give us intelligence or something that we need, that the effort needs in order to carry on the mission. 
Maybe this person will begin to experience a change. Maybe not. I don't know about how they feel about us. Or maybe, maybe they'll always hate us. I don't know, but this is all that I can do. And, and that's, that was my intellectual stance. So you then had three more deployments as an expeditionary combat surgeon in 2014, 16, and 18 to Afghanistan, the Pacific, and Iraq. Tell us about a memorable case or two and some lessons you may have learned from those cases. One of my favorite cases was when we deployed to Iraq in 2018, and we were up in Mosul, which, well, and we're in tents. And the team that I brought out there, I was the officer in command, and I was also one of the surgeons. We had a mix of people who were experienced and a group of people who this was their very first time. And so prior to deploying, we trained really hard. I won't bore you with the details, but we took it very seriously. We spent time in Los Angeles at the LA County Trauma Center, and we ourselves trained all the time. And I, one of my nurses, Marcelo Centari, he was in charge of the mass casualty drills, which we did all the time. In fact, we averaged one a week over our whole deployment. And so we were in Mosul, we're in our tents, and then suddenly we get a message from the flight tower that there's incoming in five minutes. And this is going to be our first big. And so we just grabbed everyone. We got all ready. An Iraqi plane flew in and out came a bunch of Iraqi special ops guys. And they were really shot. They were shot up very seriously. And we executed that, uh, I would say, very, very well. And during it, one of my corpsmen said, to one of the other corpsmen, I was right there. He goes, this is just like training, but I have to remind myself it's the real thing. And I thought, that's, that's perfect. We've trained just enough where this is a guy, this is his first ever mass casualty, and he's comfortable enough, and he, he did his job to perfection, to feel like, hey, this is exactly what we've been doing in training. So for me, the most memorable thing is that Practice doesn't make perfect, it makes permanent. That perfect practice makes perfect. That's what I used to tell everybody all the time. And that was our mantra. And it really came true that the more we train, the more we practice, it really pays dividends in the end. And we had multiple more mass casualties over that tour. And, and again, these guys did very, very well. So during your career, you've had the opportunity to be deployed in Roll 2 facilities as well as Roll 3 facilities downrange. Is there a different skill set as a surgeon or a different mindset, or do you prepare for those differently? How would you kind of compare those experiences and what you need to do to be successful in either one? Doug, that is a really great question, and it's one that I've thought about a lot in my, my quiet time. I think that to be a really good role three surgeon, you need to be a really good surgeon. That's pretty much it. And you can, if you're a vascular surgeon or a general surgeon who's trauma fluent or a trauma surgeon, I don't think you should just be a general surgeon who's not doing trauma. That, that's not a good spot for you. But if you're a general surgeon who does some trauma regularly, you're going to be fine. But you don't have to be that military. You can be more civilian, just a really good surgeon. Because 
it's a roll three. It's big. There's, we all find our own little subspecialties and, and your job is there and there alone. For the roll two, it's a lot more tactical. It's more, you're out there, you're in the field, you have to live in tents. You have to have that discipline of maintaining military bearing because you're not just a surgeon there. You're not just a nurse. There's a ton of junior enlisted all around you that, that look up to you as an officer, whether you realize it or not. And how you hold yourself and how you act and how you engage with the base is really important. And, and so you can't just be in your sort of an ivory tower equivalent. It's a more military version of military medicine. In the book, you describe a very interesting transition that happened over your career. And that is, you said you started life in the military as kind of a medical student who happened to be dressed up as a naval officer. But at the end of the career, you realized that you were a naval officer who happened to be a physician. Talk about that a little bit. That is, I think, maybe the the story arc of my entire 30-year career. When I joined, I had no idea what I was doing. I missed my dad. I wanted to get to know him better. So I joined the military and went to med school. I had long hair. I was not really aware of what I was signing up for. And those first years, like certainly during med school, I had no idea. And then it wasn't until Okinawa with the Marine Corps that I really started to understand what I was involved with, what I was doing. And it was those operational tours, far more so than anything stateside. It was those operational tours and even overseas at like Okinawa, Siganala, and then we would travel to Turkey or Korea or wherever else. Anytime you're out to sea or overseas, that's where I discovered what the real military was about. And then all of these combat tours very much as well. And by the end of it, I really didn't think of myself as a medical officer as much as an officer who happened to be medical. This officer happens to be intel. That officer happens to be artillery. That one happens to be flight. I happen to be medical. And that was a, a great transformation. And I wish that for everybody in our line of work, because that's when you really become part of the group and you, you understand that you're all about national security, you're about the, the overall mission, and it's not just your own little operating room. I think one of the things that made me think a lot is, is one of the things you quoted in your book. You said a philosopher, unnamed philosopher said, you can't step in the same river twice because the river changes and it's not the same. And so when you, you kind of liken that to deployments and when you go on deployment, you come back and you're not exactly the same. You're not that same river. How do you deal with that transition of going from being combat surgeon back to being citizen sur surgeon? Well, I think for me, the thing that really brought me back every time was my wife and children. I would be so invested in the unit, in the mission when I was deployed. There's nothing else. It's just, that's your whole world. And you call home and you write home and you miss them. But every minute of the day, you're out there. And then when I would come home, 
how the children are, you're, you're, you're back. All right, dad's here. It's time, you know, you're back to work with the kids and they, they want you just as intensely as the war wanted you. And I learned every time I had to relearn how to give over to that and to be the dad and be the husband. And it was different every time because they're growing like weeds and you come home and they're a different kid that you left when you went off. But you find your new place in the family each time. And so for me, it was the family that, that pulled me back into, into my citizen side. Your current position is the chief of general surgery at the Heinz VA Hospital. And as a surgical oncologist, I'm sure you participate in frequent tumor board discussions. And I saw from your resume that you're actually one of the leaders of the tumor board at your institution. All military DOD hospitals have this same process of teamwork and caring for cancer patients. Tell us about the process and why it's important for the care of cancer patients. Oh, the tumor board is essential for cancer patients. And you know, it's also essential for other types of transplant patients or children with craniofacial abnormalities. I'm sure there's complex vascular patients where a multidisciplinary board is essential. For cancer, the one I'm most familiar with, for the board, you'll have the hematology oncologist, the, the medical oncologist, I mean, the surgical oncologist, the radiation oncologist. You'll have the social worker the pathologist, the radiologist, nuclear medicine, all these different groups. And you'll take a patient and they've got every single one of these specialties has an input and you're going to put it all together and then you're going to craft an individualized solution for this particular patient. And it might be the social worker who's the one who points out that this great plan that everyone else is cooking up is never going to work because, for example, the person lives 90 miles away alone on a farm and they're not going to be able to come back for the radiation treatments or whatever. It might be a nurse practitioner. It might be anyone on the team. And this is how you can individualize the treatment and get the best results for every specific patient that you're dealing with. And you might have five patients with the same diagnosis and you have five different sort of solutions for them. What advice would you give someone who was thinking about joining the military and being a part of military medicine? I think you should look upon it as a great opportunity. Everyone else in your class is going to graduate and go on to a career that is rather similar to one another's. And then yours, you're going to take this skill set and it's going to be your ticket to ride out into the world, the big wide world. And it might take you to Africa, it might take you to the Middle East, it might take you to Asia. But this skill set that you're developing is going to bring you out of your ordinary life into you don't know where. And it might be great, it might be really, really, really hot, like in Africa, or it might be freezing cold. You just have to explore and adventure. And at the same time, you're getting to take care of just the greatest group of people that you're ever going to meet. You're working with the greatest group of people. I've met so many amazing individuals in this career. And that's how it was that we just stayed because we had wonderful friends. I had wonderful patients, wonderful colleagues. 
So that would be my advice is look at it as another way. And no, you're not going to make as much money this way without a doubt. And there's going to be a lot of uncertainty, but there's going to be a lot of adventure as well. And you don't know what the world is going to bring you, but it's going to be different every time. So let's say a hundred years from now, your great, great grandchildren somehow unearth this podcast. What would you want them to hear about your experience in military medicine? Well, I think first and foremost, the, the person to person, if somehow they could know whatever impact, hopefully good, I've been able to have on individuals, whether it was my patients or my colleagues, students, other junior enlisted or, or junior officers. I don't know how they would ever hear it, but that's what I would want them to know is the personal aspect. And then for the systems type thing, I've worked really hard on trying to build relationship between Navy medicine and trauma training and Cook County Trauma Center. And we, we built a, after some years of experimentation, we built a partnership where our corpsmen now go there for six weeks and embed. And that's been really successful. And it really, it, it changed the paradigm for Navy medicine. They started making more of these HMTT programs. And now we've started it with embedding surgical teams. We call them ERSS. And so it took about 10 years and a million papers and lots of visits and everything, but we built something and I think it's really going to help save lives on the battlefield. So I guess that would be the other thing I'd want them to know is, is that we tried to leave the place better than we got there. Well, better than what we found. We've been speaking with Dr. Paul Roach on War Doc's podcast. Paul, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thank you for your service to this nation. Well, thank you both. It's been a real honor to be invited to speak. I love your podcast. I listen to it all the time. I love the, the stories of everybody and, and I'm grateful for all that you're doing to keep all of this going. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team War Docs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.